Hello everyone, this is Christian Bassar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today, I will be having a conversation with CJ Leung. CJ hosts the Cool History Bros YouTube channel, on which he mostly discusses Chinese and East Asian history and culture. His channel very effectively introduces these rich topics in lighthearted and fun ways, along with many nice eye-catching animations. I certainly recommend checking out his channel, as it has helped me learn more about Asian history. CJ is currently working on summarizing the classical Chinese novel, Water Margin. Today on the podcast, we will have a quite deep discussion regarding Confucianism, which is more correctly known, perhaps, as Ruism. We'll talk about Ruism's origins and beliefs, as well as how the philosophy influenced Chinese and other Asian societies. CJ will also help us correct some of the misconceptions surrounding Ruism, how ideas about it were poorly transmitted, and thus how the philosophy has been misunderstood in many circles. Let's get right into it. And I would like to apologize in advance. We had a few technical issues, not nothing too drastic or anything. The interview went very well. But in the first little bit, uh, there was a little bit of a timing issue. And also, like, my voice seems really slow sometimes. So the way I recorded, it was like I heard myself as I was talking. So, <laughs> so it made my words uh, sound a little different and it made me speak a little slower. And there is one time uh, in about um, 40, 45 minutes in or so, that um, we lost a little bit of uh, CJ, uh, CJ's voice when we he was talking about a figure in Chinese history. But uh, outside from that, everything went well. I just wanted to make note of that and apologize for that beforehand. So, hello, CJ. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, how are you, Christian? Yeah, yeah. thanks for having yeah, me. I'm it's an doing... honor to be brought to your pro uh, podcast. A very interesting one. Yeah, you got tons of different topics that uh, don't usually cover, and it's very interesting. It's very eclectic. Thank you very much. Sorry, I think there's uh, a lag in the in the audio and recording. All right, I see. Okay, I hope it's not going to ruin too many things. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll be too much of a problem. I'll just give like a, like a few seconds <laughs> for it to uh, transmit and everything. So, uh, CJ, uh, if you don't mind mm -hmm. uh, giving some personal background about yourself and some info on your YouTube channel. I know I uh, mm -hmm. really enjoy it myself. You really present Asian history in a fun and lighthearted way, and, and you can learn a lot watching the videos, too. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, I'm mostly an um, amateur historian. Okay. I work I used to work at video editing uh, company, um, mm -hmm. and you know we make uh, educational uh, videos for uh, schools and so on. And you know I started branching out, making videos uh, on my own uh, for YouTube, uh, just creating uh, all this sort of like uh, information and news uh, information on history, on mostly Asian history that's not usually covered, even though it's a well-known uh, fact and also. Uh, mostly information that's uh, been discussed in the higher part of uh, education uh, that rarely gets transmitted down to the lower uh, side of education, middle or lower education. Because what happened is that, you know, um, 
information and uh, historical knowledge just keep evolving. And the problem is, you know, it takes a really long time or sometimes it never gets transmitted down uh, to high schools or even primary schools. So a lot of history is still uh, misconceived and so on. Um, And you know, my a lot of my information is hardly uh, hardly controversial at all. But you know, uh, a lot of people are still quite surprised by all this seemingly new information that I provide, mm. and um, I just um, you know uh, figured it out when I'm speaking to my friends or just other people about uh, this side of history that they don't know of and just thought, hey, why don't I try and make a YouTube channel out of this? Just make it interesting enough, um, make it palatable for younger viewers too so that it's easy for them to understand. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's really, really cool. Yeah, because sometimes you can be in that, well, they call it the ivory tower of academics, right? So it's... You have this specialized knowledge of something and then people in high school or middle school, like you said, they might not know anything. Like somebody in uh, Canada or may know a little bit about the Three Kingdoms period or the uh, various periods in China and especially about communist China and stuff like that. But But it's not deep. It's not really if they don't look for it they won't know it right yeah that's right and sometimes it is not the people in ivory towers fault uh, yeah. the thing is you know uh, sometimes they are judged by the sort of articles and the research uh, they put out and they don't have time to actually transmit it to normal regular people mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's the problem that's the way they are trained to write and yeah. that's how they are trained to communicate so you know I do have a lot of friends you know in uh, academia and so on you know? yeah, <laughs> their yeah. life isn't that great too and hardly anybody look up uh, f- uh, that information mm-hmm. sometimes the problem is you know with the uh, educational curriculum itself whether they want to pick up all this new information to be brought uh, brought into lower education or yeah. middle or lower education yeah 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 that that makes perfect sense where it's depends on and a lot of knowledge depends on access to archives you know what grade eight mm-hmm. grade eight student is gonna look in archives you know yeah yeah. journals and so on and yeah. it's also gated by all this subscription subscription and all mm-hmm. this like money that they need to earn from all these journals from these publications yeah yeah that's yeah. Uh, a lot of gated knowledge that exists there definitely yeah i mentioned the magic of editing when you do podcasts and youtube videos but editing won't get you past the um the big firewall, you know, <laughs> or the big paywall. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> paywall. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, cool. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are currently summarizing a Chinese novel called Water Margin. How's that project right. going, and what is Water Margin? Oh, it's ongoing. Water Margin, it's a story, it's a um, semi-fictional story based okay. uh, on the Song Dynasty. What happened is that, you know, um, uh, there was a rebellion by a figure called uh, Song Jiang back in, during the Northern Song Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it seemed to be a rather small rebellion. Everything is solved. But, you know, this has become uh, set as a backdrop of... Uh, 
of a uh, epic story of a group of 108 outlaws. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a significant Buddhist number, oh. and and uh, they uh, it's a story about the human interaction uh, and pretty much about human drama, mm -hmm. uh, very manly human drama. That's <laughs> uh, how they they write. Uh, uh, that's. What they consider to be a manly sort of like character, and the thing is, you know, they are not completely heroic. They are uh, the story is very much more like a Sopranos than anything else. <laughs> they are very morally uh, flawed, and yeah. a lot of them are defined as much by their uh, abilities and you know how good they are at fighting. Some of them, you know, there's a very completely different eclectic uh, group of people. Some mm -hmm. of them are actually just a painter who is uh, roped in the, to create forgeries. And some of them are carvers uh, 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 pulled in to create like a, a forgery of like seal uh, because they used uh, stamp seals as oh, signature yes. back then. Yeah, that sort of stuff. So oh. it's more, it's a, like a humongous heist uh, novel. Oh. And, you know, they are pretty much uh, creating a group of uh, bandits and outlaws um, just to uh, fight against the corrupt government officials. Oh, and wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very, very uh, rebellious novel. It's, uh, you can kind of imagine it to be the side, uh, cyberpunk of back then but it's not quite cyber <laughs> oh yeah, yeah it's not quite so yeah. yeah oh wow that's that's amazing and when was it written it was written around the early uh, middle or early ming dynasty what happens is that um Usually with all these novels, they started out as local stories. Um, there are lots of like storytellers and so, so on. Uh, it, it's an art form back then, uh, vernacular storytellers. Yeah. Um, they go around telling stories. Uh, that's why these stories can be very long. There's a lot of uh, different characters that has been collated into one, into one big uh, novel. And somebody, uh, the story would have started somewhere around the Song Dynasty mm -hmm. as these some of these events are fictionalized by uh, roadside storytellers until they uh, became uh, collected into a large novel. And even as a large novel, there are a few iterations because back then there weren't any copyright laws. Uh, people just yeah. add their own, uh, that add their own flair and it just got improved and improved. It's like a sort of like a crowdsourced uh, storytelling. Mm. Uh, the story keep improving it keeps improving uh, uh time through time yeah wow well that's really cool everything gets added to everybody adds their own flair to the legend and the myth and everything mm -hmm. okay that's oh, right very cool so uh our topic for today is confucianism mm -hmm. and right. very broadly what is Confucianism, when did it start and who founded it? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's, uh, I think we should start with uh, the idea that there is a uh, different interpretation from different traditions. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, from, uh, from China and so on, you know, um, everyone would agree that it is a philosophy uh, started by uh, Con Confucius. But the idea, but the thing it's, uh, this is a, there is also the idea that this is the tradition uh, in uh, 
Chinese historiography, mm-hmm. it is considered as a tradition that uh, went up beyond Confucius. But in the West, uh, what happened is that you know uh, they use a an old Jesuit lens uh, to look at this issue, uh, this yeah. uh, Confucius idea. Because what happened is that you know the story was brought to the West uh, through the Jesuits, so it was uh, seen through a very uh, Christian lens. Mm-hmm. Um, or more like, to be more precise, a uh, Catholic lens. Yeah. Um, the Jesuits who transmitted this these stories actually have uh, their own agendas too. I will go into that a bit later, which is yeah. very interesting. Mm-hmm. And the writers, the readers of this transmitted stories, a lot of them have their own agendas too. Yeah. For example, back then, uh, Voltaire, he was, you know, as we know, he was very much against the church and everything, and he needed a model, a model of a working government, the Chinese uh, Confucius uh, philosophical model, where uh, moral can be decided uh, without uh religion without a church so he just champions uh, Confucianism and everything as a a great model of a secular government Mm -hmm. so everyone is interpreting it a bit differently to pretty much fulfill their own agenda Mm -hmm. and uh, but the thing is ideas do get uh, lost in translation or you can say localized to fit uh, the local needs yeah. is uh, you can just imagine it's sort of like a chinese food in uh, in america <laughs> there are like different dishes that is never seen in china yeah. and so is japan uh, r- uh, ramen became a japanese dish even mm-hmm. though uh, it's it was purportedly supposed to be a Chinese dish, but they we actually uh, in China they don't actually have that dish. Uh, it was a, a modified Chinese dish that became a ramen, and mm. yeah, it's it became Japanese uh, dish oh. now, yeah. even though it is sold at so-called uh, Chinese restaurants in Japan, which is not quite <laughs> uh, Chinese Chinese. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, in in Korea, the same thing. You have. Uh, Korean Chinese restaurants, yeah, so jajang, they have yeah. jajangmyeon, not jajangmyeon, I believe the Chinese <laughs> yeah. is. So it's uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting when you talk about different lenses, different agendas. Like the primary Russian chronicle, which is kind of the most precious early Russian historical document of the made in the. the 1200s, I believe, but the narrative there is before the what is now Russia and Ukraine converted to Orthodox Christianity. You know, they were they were pagans, they were evil people. They would uh, do all this stuff, and the ruler was a particularly evil man. And then he converts to Christianity, and then then he's a paragon of virtue. You know, so it's um, yeah. it's kind of this similar thing with using agendas and lenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And uh, the the uh, what happened to Confucianism in Korea is also quite interesting too. Yeah. Uh, I will get. I can get into that later. But mm. uh, do you have any specific question, or where do you want to start? Uh. Yeah. Sure. I was just um, wondering what's the traditional narrative origin of Confucian ethics. Uh. Well, the origin of Confucian ethics. Uh started way before Confucius. Um, mm. uh, the thing, uh, the way, uh, uh, maybe we can use another term, uh, Ruism, as yeah. in uh, China it is called uh, Ru, 
uh, rule tradition. Uh, it's um, it's what the tradition is called. Confucius is the most important sage, right. the one who collated all this information. But as he said himself, he is a transmitter, not an innovator. Right. Well, because, you know, he is using the authority of the previous kings, um, uh, is that some of them are the legendary kings, of course, that we consider to be mythical. We don't have any historical record of them. Yeah. And um, a lot of it comes from the Zhou kings, uh, the Zhou royalty, mm-hmm. because at his time, it was a time of civil war. Uh, uh, the various uh, federations that formed the Zhou dynasty, uh, all the surrounding states are starting to rebel against the uh, the rule and the control of Zhou. But the Zhou dynasty itself, the size of their holding is becoming smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all they had was uh, sort of like a moral and cultural and civilizational uh, soft power that they still had. Right. Eventually, they are yeah, going to be destroyed, eliminated by the warring states period. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it became considered a warring state because all these other states call themselves king now. They are challenging the authority of the Zhou dynasty king. Yeah. Um, Confucius, uh, he lived uh, slightly before uh, the Warring States period, but uh, the thing is, you know, he is pretty much anticipating what's going to happen next. Mm. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, you know, that's why it eventually became Imperial China when one of the states, uh, the Qing, uh, conquered all the other states and became the unifier of China. Yeah. Um, what happened, they were only, what happened back then during the, even during Zhou Dynasty, all these different states, uh, they are lands of thieves uh, uh, that are uh, given to the relatives of the Zhou kings and Zhou royalty. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they develop their own, uh, develop their own uh, cultures and so on. But before that, is still the unifying factor of the uh, Zhou sort of rituals and all that sort of uh, stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, for example, uh, during Confucius's time, or slightly after him. Uh, they were relying on the five classics. Yeah. Uh, there are the Confucian canon of four books and five classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started out with uh, five classics. It's mm-hmm. actually six, but they lost the six classic. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, it's only during the time of uh, Song Ming, uh, uh, Ruism, or in the West, it's called Neo-Confucianism. Uh-huh. They added the four books. Mm-hmm. It's added by Zhu Xi. He's going to be uh, uh, quite a central character uh, when we get into Neo-Confucianism. Yeah. All these examples, all uh, he's referring to the all these sage kings from uh, legends that you know people back then considered to have existed for real. It's very much like uh, religion, or very much like, uh, for example, in the Bible, the believing in Noah and uh, all the other characters that we don't have exact uh, archaeological evidence of their existence. But the Mm. thing is, uh, they believe that these characters exist and they are using this narrative, uh, uh, their sagely narrative as example on how they should live their life. Mm. Usually uh, in the West, uh, the Chinese history uh, is framed uh, in 
the form of dynasties, the Xia dynasty, which is known to be mystical, uh, and then Sang, which is semi-mystical because we only have archaeological evidence of the later half of the Sang dynasties. Okay. And then Zhou is quite... Uh, uh, it's quite relatively solid. Uh, we have uh, quite a few uh, archaeological evidence of that, ex except that, you know, um, of course, uh, there are competing accounts uh, from history. So yeah. uh, we are not quite sure which ones are right. It's yeah, always yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, you know, um, before uh, the first, uh, before Xia dynasty, the mystical dynasty, there were the mystical rulers of China the three august and five emperors. Mm -hmm. uh, these are quite mystical. Uh, Yellow Emperor Huangdi is one of the... Uh, okay, let me... I, I think we should start with the three august. Uh, sure. Three august, uh, they, they are the uh, Fuxi, Nuwa, and Senong. These are cultural heroes. They, they pretty much in, uh, invented, uh, created the world and so on. They are gods or demigods right and by the time we reach the five emperors they are uh uh sagely kings they are um you know people who are perfect in their virtues and uh there was the yellow emperor and the two others and uh, very important uh, to confucius he focused on the last two Yao and sun okay uh they are their best virtue is that they observe uh, meritocracy. Mm -hmm. uh, Yao, he gave his throne to Sun because he he tested Sun. He considered him to be a man of great virtue, and he just uh, gave his throne away uh, to the best person. So yeah. let the best person rule. It's a form of meritocracy. Right. And this, I guess, you know, this also becomes one of the core ideas that led to the imperial examination. Let the best person rule. Yeah. Uh, let, let the person control. The exam system. <clears throat> That's right, yeah. Mm. Um, but that will happen much later. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing is, you know, um, even Confucius himself may have his own agenda in this because uh, he may be interpreting it in his, in the way that he preferred because there are competing accounts, the bamboo annals mm -hmm. uh, that has been uncovered uh, very early actually mm -hmm. in around 300 AD. Wow. They were really, you know, because uh, the Chinese back then, they are really into records. Yeah. They really like writing history be, uh, because it also, history writing in, reinforces their uh, sovereign, sovereignty, their legitimacy to rule. So right. that's, uh, history writing is quite important. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a competing account saying that Sun actually uh, imprisoned Yao. So mm -hmm. it's a coup. And yes. uh, after a while, uh, he lets uh, Yao's uh, son control uh, uh, rule mm -hmm. and until eventually he takes over <gasps> so it is still real <laughs> politic yeah uh, that's a competing account but of course you know that competing account may not be true either because we don't have exact uh, archaeological evidence uh, of any of those yeah exactly yeah uh, so <clears throat> just for uh, context the warring states period is in the mm -hmm. in bc right that's right yeah oh, okay uh, like fourth century third century uh, around fifth, uh, or uh, it's a bit earlier, I think. Oh, okay. So like fifth century. Yeah. So 
Confucius, the guy, the um, um, the guy who was relaying, not the innovator. Mm-hmm. So we, he was around the five hundreds or four hundreds BC, something That's like right. that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So uh, around five hundred BC. So Warring States is uh, around four hundred BC, something. Okay. Until okay. it's ended by uh, two hundred twenty-one BC uh, right. when uh, Qing Dynasty uh, just conquered the rest of China. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Thanks for, very much for that context there. Perfect. Um, so does Confucianism or Ruism have like an mm-hmm. eschatology, like? Different philosophies and religions have different eschatologies or endpoints. Like communism has the perfect workers' paradise. Christianity has the kingdom of heaven. Neoliberalism has mm-hmm. democracy and the rules-based order. And um, so, does Confucianism have something like that? Like a perfect society where everybody follows the law, everybody respects elders, and so on. Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. As you said, uh, it's really he's really like hearkening back to the uh, let's the uh, utopian past, the time right. of Yao and Sun. So you know, as long as you know everyone is doing their role, and you know uh, the world uh, would be pretty much at peace. And um, if you people rule by meritocracy and behave according to the rites and rituals and treat others benevolently and so on, um, he's uh, pretty much trying to create, uh, you know, this sort of idyllic past that you know you would imagine people who would be caught in the civil war would be wishing for, right. because uh, during his time. Um, uh, there was a lot of chaos already. Yeah. Mm, okay. Mm. So it's it's an eschatology of looking forward, but looking back to a utopian past. That's right, yeah. Oh, you talked about Confucianism being called Ruism. Mm. What mm. is perhaps the biggest misconception or misunderstanding of Ruism, especially in the Western world? Maybe uh, aside from naming, are there... Other misconceptions about it? I would say that, you know, it is a contested sort of like um, definition of Ruism or Confucianism as a religion. Mm, yeah. Uh, because, you know, if you would ask a lot of like uh, perhaps like Chinese people or people who live mostly in Asia, they would not consider uh, Confucianism or Ruism to be a religion. Right. Uh, because, you know, uh, it's a sort of like to them, it's a philosophy that can fit into many aspects of other religions. It mm. you can be a Confucian Buddhist, Confucian Taoist, and everything. Even though the Confucians hate both of them, <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, the thing is, uh, uh, yeah, but you know, in the West, uh, the idea is that they also practice ancestor worship. Right. But the thing is, the ancestor worship is. Um, it can be fit into anything. It's just part of their tradition. Mm-hmm. Since uh, Taoists also practice ancestor worship, Buddhist ancestor worship, uh, to them, you know, it has uh, receded into the background. This ancestor worship doesn't count as religion to them anymore. Uh-huh. So that's why uh, even uh, during uh, during the time of the Jesuits, they just uh, let the Jesuits come in. Uh, all right, we'll, uh, okay, we'll be Christians and we'll still doing our ancestor worship thing because that's just what everybody does. <laughs> they don't yeah. consider <laughs> yeah, they don't consider that to be something against the uh, Christian teaching. Right. And back then, uh, 
what happens is that you know the Jesuits at the time uh, they also allowed them. They this be, will become a controversy later on, mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese right controversy. But at the first uh, at, at the first time, uh, they just uh, let them do it, uh, and you know, they are gaining quite a lot of followers, and it's working pretty fine for them until the Pope uh, banned it later, and uh. it just that's when. Um, it created discord between uh, the Chinese uh, Qing Dynasty uh, and the foreign missionaries. Right. Uh, right. That's when the uh, that's when the separation starts. Oh, okay. And I guess maybe maybe nowadays, perhaps I'm not sure. Um, if mm-hmm. someone is um, looking to be uh, like follow the Confucian philosophy not as a religion and again but could um maybe leave out the ancestor worship or or respect and still be a a christian in korea for example or a buddhist in china is is it kind of like malleable like that like you can i'll follow the confucian philosophy but i won't worship my ancestors is that does that happen Oh yeah, sure, sure, yeah. that happens. Okay. Uh, the thing is, you know, um, Confucianism uh, it doesn't have a church really. It's, yeah. What happens? Uh, Confucianism is spread uh, in schools. Uh, so, um, uh, the idea is that you know back then you have Confucian education, mm-hmm. and uh, because you know uh, education starts with uh, learning Confucian texts and also other various texts, uh, they have practically monopoly on education itself. Mm-hmm. So um, they don't have church, uh, they just have school. And um, you know if you want to be uh, a high-ranked scholar, you if you want to pass the examinations, you have to uh, take the tests. Yeah. Uh, take the, uh, you know, which use lots of like Confucian topics and subjects as uh, as test subjects, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, you would have to be uh, well versed in that. And also, even officials, even kings, are sometimes bound by Confu- Confucian rules. Yeah, you know, even even when a, uh, for example, emperors. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, very interesting with Emperor Taizong. Uh, he was the war emperor, the young, uh, very virile and powerful uh, warrior emperor. Uh, uh, he, When he launched a coup, took over uh, the throne from his father, he had to uh, keep his father alive and happy because you know if he uh, did anything bad to his father he would have committed a grave confusion sin yeah. nobody would yeah nobody would uh, accept him as a ruler mm-hmm. and the same thing goes for officials sometimes if they have domestic issues if they treated their parents badly the the emperor would just uh, have them come in and question them uh, why are, because you know the idea is that you know you would start uh, your rule from home. You would mm-hmm. treat your uh, family, your uh, your friends, brothers, and your uh, father, and everything uh, uh, in the proper order, so that you know you you can also rule the government uh, with the same same virtue as you have in your domestic life. Right. Now, this right. is what the five relations in Confucianism, mm-hmm. like uh, friends to friends, friends to uh, siblings, a friend to parents, uh, friends, uh, I mean, one to ruler and so on. Okay. Yeah, that's a very 
hierarchical system, I understand. You re- respect your elders, respect your rulers, respect the, the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Oh, very And good. it also uh, made a bit of a uh, contentious issue because, mm-hmm. you know, it's become a question. Should you uh, respect your father more or the law more? <laughs> it's become, because, uh, yeah, the thing is, you know, when Confucius was asked, you know, is it... Uh, is it virtuous for someone to hand his father into the law if he committed a crime mm-hmm. or is it uh, more virtuous to uh, cover his father yeah. uh, you know to, to protect his father yeah. uh, confucius says he can see virtue in the son protecting the father mm-hmm. yeah so uh, every bit of like text uh, is debatable mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Well, that's interesting. So I guess that's the the biggest misconception. I know it, growing up in the Western world, it was like I always saw Confucianism as a as a religion. I'm not sure if I was taught or had the impression that Confucius was worshipped like Jesus is in Christianity, but I'm not sure if I if if I was remembering that. But I guess it. It's a re- it's a philosophy, not a not a religion per se. Uh, I would say it's a philosophy with uh, a lot of rituals yeah. that may have religious origins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, as Confucius says, you know, he can appreciate the ritual. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not necessarily for the god itself. Not he's not doing it for the god because the ritual. Uh, it it helps uh, builds uh, a character. It just uh, builds a virtuous moral person. Mm, yeah, these are kind of like spiritual <laughs> habits, almost, if you will. That's right, something yeah. like that. So you mentioned the missionaries and the Jesuits. What about their relationship and their contact with Ruism? Oh yeah, and this is a very interesting story. It has to do with. Uh, uh, ha- Matteo Ricci, uh, he's a very uh, important or a very famous uh, missionary in China itself uh, because, mm. you know, he did a lot of things and he was considered to be uh, uh, quite an important historical person. Uh, the, and also, this is how the label Neo-Confucianism was thrown onto the uh, Song Ming uh, Ruists. That's because... Uh, because of his uh, perception of them, which is quite interesting. Mm. So... Uh, the thing is, you know, with uh, a lot of the missionaries, uh, this is not just uh, this is not exclusive to uh, Christian missionaries, of course. Uh, Buddhist missionaries too also do this. Um, when they go to a new place, uh, they usually uh, they would adopt uh, their uh, gods or their concepts into the local ideas. Very common. For example, uh, yeah, very common. And you know. Uh, Sometimes people get confused, uh, you know, uh, whether they are talking about uh, one of their old gods or um, is this an old local concept or something. Um, but the thing is, uh, when the Jesuit missionaries came to China, at first they thought because Buddhism is, seems to be more religious and they have came to contact with uh, Buddh- Buddhism uh, previously. So they dressed themselves up as uh, Buddhist monks at first, oh, uh, trying, wow. to get, <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to get uh, Christian converts. And then perhaps they'll just inform them, surprise, you're a Christian. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, that's weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the thing is, uh, it didn't work that well. Mm, yeah. They realized that, you know, uh, uh, 
Buddhism, uh, they may get a few uh, people in the thing, but uh, the ones who are holding the real power in uh, China at the time, they are the Ruist, the scholar officials. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, and you know, what they did is the, they rebranded themselves after a while, realizing that, um, uh, you know, just dressing up as Buddhists uh, don't work. So they started dressing up as uh, Confucianists mm-hmm. and they started uh, reading all this uh, Confucian texts. Yeah. And they did a really good job at it too. Mm. So, what happened is that, you know, they are become very convincing. Uh, uh, they, have very deep knowledge on Confucian texts and so on. And uh, Theo Ritchie himself, he was informed of uh, there was a term uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, there are some Chinese gods that has not been uh, worshipped since uh, the after around uh, Qing or Han dynasty, uh, uh, from uh, uh, state of Qi, he was called a Tianzu or heaven's lord Mm, so he started using that name for the christian god Mm -hmm. uh, but that's why right now uh what's it called Uh, catholicism in china is a tenzu religion okay Uh, the name stuck but besides that he also argued that you know the the god of the sang dynasty uh he is also supposed to be the monotheistic god. So they are worshipping the same god. And, you know, come very well first in Confucian texts, Confucian literature. And he, you know, he was invited uh, to see other like scholar officials and so on. And he also debated uh, against the other Confucianists. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, the orthodoxy has uh, turned to uh, Zuzi's uh, school of rational uh, Confucianism rational. and also uh, Wang Yangming's uh, uh, Confucianism. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he became one of the contenders against them. So he argued that, you know, there was the original uh, Ruism. Mm-hmm. that is lost in the current form of uh, Confucianism uh, per, uh, that is being pushed by Zhu Xi's disciples and also Wang Yangming's disciples. Okay. Uh, so he says, you know, uh, we need to go back to the original uh, Confucian, Confucianism and to start you know, respecting the one God and so on. Yeah. Um, so he's using a lot of like um, Confucianism uh, to justify his religion. He's arguing that, you know, it is his religion fits with Confucianism. Mm-hmm. And uh, he managed to gain quite a, quite a handful of, what's it called? Uh, influential support. Or influential support. Yeah, influential supporters. Also a convert, uh, Xu Guangxi. He is a Confucian uh, scholar who is one of the higher profile convert into Christianity. Okay. Uh, he uh, said that, you know, Confucianism, I mean, Christianity uh, is compatible with Confucianism and mm. says that, you know, uh, all this other, uh, uh, all this uh, current form of Confucianism uh that's uh, pushed by Juicy has been influenced by Taoism and Buddhism and so on. Right. So uh, they are not really that good either. Mm. Uh, uh, however, uh, 
that what he was doing is actually quite the mainstream. Uh, he's not the only one who is uh, pushing against the orthodoxy. So there are quite a few other schools, quite a few orthodoxy pushing against uh, each other, uh, trying to find uh, influence. So he's pretty practically uh, uh, thrown himself into the fray, and he did really well defending his idea with other confusion, other confusions. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why you know he has created a bit of like a niche for himself. Okay. And uh, by the Ming Dynasty, he was very well accepted. He, he was even invited to court, uh, drew the map of the world, and he, uh, you know, since you know he has lots of other other useful skills, mm-hmm. um, uh, he pretty much uh, created a base for missionaries. Uh, yeah. But the thing is, uh, Ch- Chinese converts still uh, worship. Uh, uh, their ancestors, uh, they uh, they offer incense to their ancestor and so on. There are still mm-hmm. a lot of the other traditional Chinese trapping. Yeah. This will uh, blow up later, a uh, hundred or so years after when uh, the Chinese right controversy happened. Right. So uh, uh, throughout uh, the Ming Dynasty, the Christians uh, had a pre- had a pretty good uh, run, mm-hmm. and then uh, during the Qing Dynasty, they were also had a good run. Mm-hmm. So uh, em- the Kangxi Emperor gave them a, like a, a special law, uh, telling the populace that you know these people uh, are practicing their peaceful religion, uh, do not harm them, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he gave them uh, like special protection among with a few other groups of missionaries. But the thing is, later on, um, the Pope of the time around the uh, late 600s or early, uh, uh, late uh, 1600s or early 1700s, the Pope uh, considered the Chinese rituals to be uh, pagan. He he thinks that it should not have a place in in worship, in uh, in the church worship, and yeah. also he decided that you know the name for God needs to be uh, Tianzu, so he, you can't use Sangti or anything else. Mm-hmm. So he prescribed a lot of changes that uh, the Christians in China needs to follow. Right. Mm, okay. And uh, when the emperor saw this decree from the Pope, you know he was really angered by it. Yeah. And, you know, he uh, kicked out all the missionaries and says, if they want to come and preach, they have to follow the traditions of Matteo Ricci. Oh, so okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, for a while, yeah, for a while, you know, Christianity and their missionaries had issue uh, entering uh, China. It's because of this Chinese right controversy. Wow. Uh, but uh, nowadays, uh, as far as I know, uh, uh, it's... It's allowed for uh, Chinese people to uh, offer incense uh, to their ancestors now. Mm-hmm. I think uh, they have relaxed the the ban for now. Oh, really? Oh, uh, uh, like the Catholic Church allows it. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to neo Confucianism, mm-hmm. this is the interesting bit because mm-hmm. Zhu Xi himself he was uh, in the fray arguing against the orthodox uh, uh, Zhu. Uh, uh, I mean. Uh, uh, Matteo Ricci, uh, he was arguing against the orthodox uh, juicy sort of like a brand of uh, neo-Confucianism. Okay. Uh, he called these people uh, 
the new Confucianist, uh, oh. neo Confucianist. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, the label came from Matteo Ricci. Mm. Uh, he didn't invent the label, but he created this idea that these people are doing something new. They are something separate from the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have the neo-Confucian uh, label uh, in the West, because uh, in the West, it's they were thought to have done something new when you know it's really just part of their ongoing like Confucian tradition, uh, where yeah. there is constant uh, arguing and constant uh, uh, evolution of idea. Yeah, and that's the one that just happened to be called Neo, not any of the other <laughs> variations. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and this is how uh, ideas are uh, are you know formed because you know yeah. uh, they are seen from a different perspective, and uh, there are different sort of like uh, agendas behind it too. Yes. Uh, because uh, he, uh, uh, Matteo Ricci, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to his credit, he did everything in the uh, in the in the realm of the Chinese Confucian debate, mm-hmm. but he still has his own uh, Christian idea to push. So he considered them to be something separate. Yes. Uh, but you know, this idea is further, you can say, twisted or further uh, spun mm-hmm. uh, to the benefit of other like contemporary uh, readers of uh, the uh, Confucian text that's brought into the Jesuits. Right. So they can, because the Jesuits, uh, when uh, Matteo Ricci wrote his book, it was written in Italian. Yes. And even uh, from Italian, when it was translated to Latin, mm-hmm. the lingua franca back then, mm-hmm. there are some passages that was uh, deleted. Mm-hmm. For example, on how people go to the Confucian temples and burn incense. Oh. Uh, th- some of the parts are deleted yeah. so that uh, the Confucian practice seems even more uh, secular. Wow. So it's almost like, it, or it almost seems like the either by him or the translators of his book into mm. Latin, they wanted, to, it seems like they wanted to give the, the Catholic world a perception that, yep, Confucianism and Christianity are sort of compatible, so we're just turning these Confucian people into Christians, and they keep a little bit of their practice, and it's okay, until the time the Pope realized, it's like, mm, this looks like idol worship or ancestor worship to me, so <laughs> <laughs> that it then the gig is up, yeah. I guess. That's what it seems like. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, because before that, they, they did a really good job. They came yeah. quite a few conference until the Pope <laughs> stopped it. <laughs> yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, then it's all the old debate. It's like, let's open the doors of the church. Let's get everybody in. But the, somebody else will say, well, let's teach them accurately. Don't just get them in. Teach them correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah, and that's how also uh, how Voltaire and so on uh, they started like championing uh, uh, Confucianism as an uh, alternative uh, or as a model for a secular government. Uh, back then, you know, he was quite popular. Yeah, yeah, it oh, was especially secularized uh, back then um, mm-hmm. uh, through uh, because they are have their own agendas to push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And- because uh, the Enlightenment philosophers were also talking about not all of them rejected religion per se, but they didn't want mm-hmm. uh, religion and state together. And also they had that idea, we don't want the church to just to um, dictate morality. So that perception of, of a secular Confucianism fits in perfectly with their worldview. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, very and this sort of issue, uh, you know, uh, all this information get getting a bit uh, warped. Uh, just goes all around. Uh, it's not just. Uh, not necessarily just uh, from uh, Asia to the West, but it can be from the West to Asia and so on. But uh, even today, it is still happening. For example, uh, I had a previous so the uh, female pirate queen of Asia and so on. Oh, okay. um, I'm not. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if you know about her, but no, I she's think I've heard to- of her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, she's uh, pretty much a figure that is mythologicalized in the West. In right. chi- in China, uh, they don't really know her. Mm-hmm. She's actually a minor character in the leg- legend of Zhang Baozai. Uh, okay. Zhang Baozai was a local folk hero, local pirate mm-hmm. that fought against uh, government uh, uh, boats and ev- any everything. Uh, sort of like a no. Uh, local legendary bandit yeah uh, there are various uh, stories or poems about him but you know Qing Si was his uh, like uh, well she is sort of like a background manager uh, the the heads uh, the brain running the crowd but you know yeah. uh, Zhang Baozai is the person who is sung in poems and everything mm-hmm. the the thing is you know maybe she is uh really the master strategist or whatever. But the fact is there are no written record or information. Mm. There are not enough of them uh, to turn her into an action uh, kung fu hero or or anything like that. Wow. Um, All this story is uh, 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 pushed and written by, what's that called? Uh, By a writer who who was uh, just writing a story for a uh, one of those pulp, uh, pulp novels, uh, one of those pulp books. Oh, yeah. uh, and he said that he heard about this story from his uh, local uh, uh, Chinese uh, laundry person. <laughs> wow. Well, that's interesting. So then it just becomes blown out of proportion in a way. And so she gets a, a much much larger press, if you will, than in, than in the place where she was from. That's right, yeah. yeah. And oh, a lot of the stuff were added, like, for example, him, uh, her punching uh, her husband, and uh, <laughs> soon enough, after her husband's death, she took over control. Uh, uh, there are lots of details uh, that are embellished. Yeah. And even, uh, even in, in the 1980s, even in the 1980s, because this story started to circulate in the West since the early 20th century. So even in the 1980s, a lot of the story is uh, taken to be mostly true Mm -hmm. until uh, uh, the early 2000s by the same author, uh, uh, Professor Diane Murray. Mm -hmm. Uh, In uh, 20 years since uh, she wrote uh, this uh, this article about her, she uh, came back uh, to the topic and realized that you know a lot of these stories are not quite true. They're not quite. <laughs> I have to revise yeah. my my uh, uh, my earlier findings. That's right. Yeah. 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 So mm-hmm. even even this sort of uh, information can take twenty years to revise, yeah. and I don't even know if people would be uh, right. Uh, you know, would be 
uh, you know, correcting the story that has gone to media or all these embellished stories and so on. Yeah. Um, there is no incentive in correcting mis- misinformation. Yeah. Never, um, yeah, you know, never let facts interfe- interfere with a good story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. So applying that to Confucianism or Ruism, um, I understand uh, when we were when we were talking earlier uh, by email, you mentioned that even it, like in in Asia, they're starting to use or in academia rather, they're starting to use the term Ruism instead of Confucianism, right? But that might take a very long time to fully correct because you know when I'm growing up. Um, you know, I hear Confucianism, Confucianism, or even like the the silly uh, quotes or jokes about if somebody says something from China, it says like Confucius say, and then another thing, it becomes a meme before they became cool on the internet, right? So there's a lot of um, yeah. misperceptions or, um, you know, like like you like you said, sort of a mistransferring or mistranslating of of philosophies or ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And uh, well, I guess you know. Um, uh, I don't think it is especially necessary to uh, use the proper name or whatever. But the thing, because you know, language do have differences. That's true. Uh, I think as long as they just understand that you know, uh, things as they are, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that'd be good enough. Yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, I think we pretty much have the same issue with the name of countries that with the, I did a previous episode on the uh, endonym and exonym of countries. And it does tell, say a lot about how uh, the first impression is always stuck in various countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, uh, the name China itself, it came from uh, India, Mm because in China, they call China Zhongguo, of course, the middle translated uh, literally as middle kingdom or middle country, yes. uh, more literal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's become China because uh, it was called Qin in India mm-hmm. because uh, it is assumed that uh, back then, the westernmost uh, uh, state of the Zhou dynasty was mm-hmm. the state of Qin, which will eventually like uh, conquer the rest of China and unified as the Qing dynasty. Yeah. So the name Qin was brought uh, to Persia and so on. And China also had another name, yeah. Kate. Oh, Kate okay. came from Kitan. Yeah. Yes. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, during, uh, slightly before the Song Dynasty, the Kitan people, uh, they ruled northern part of China and they think, hey, uh, <laughs> they are going to follow the Confucian tradition and claim that they are China. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the idea is that you know uh, they want to con- uh, use uh, this Confucian tradition and all this sort of uh, bells and whistles so that you know they can justify their rule over China. Yeah. So what happened was that uh, the the Kitans also had familial connection with the one of the royal family of the later Tang Dynasty because they uh, uh, at the end of Tang Dynasty there was a chaotic period mm-hmm. of. Uh, let's see, the five dynasties and 10 kingdoms period where there you are know, five successive dynasties. They are just uh, fighting over the control of China. Ah. Um, it was uh, Liang dynasty, uh, uh, late 
uh, and then later Liang Dynasty, later Tang, uh, because a lot of these uh, dynasties, the succeeding dynasties, they are using a uh, name from previous dynasties to uh, justify their rule. So mm-hmm. what happens is that the, the Kitans help the people uh, from the later Tang Dynasty uh, take over the later Liang Dynasty. So uh, since they have supported them and they also have familiar connection with their uh, with the father of the ruler and everything, they consider themselves as family. Yeah. So uh, they wanted the the people to start calling them as the elder brother emperor. Mm. And eventually they want to be the Chinese emperor themselves mm-hmm. because they they are creating justifications. Uh, uh, starting, uh, you, you can kind of imagine that there's a long-term case of war for to conquer China pretty much. Right. So they consider themselves the real China uh, mm-hmm. after a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is when uh, uh, the Mongols started to appear. Yeah. Uh, there were still small tribes back then, and uh, so so they considered China to be Kitan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's that's where uh, the name come from. Uh, Kitai came from Kitan, and that name was brought to to the West mm-hmm. by Marco Polo. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. That's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, he that's went because there he... during the Mongol period in China, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So he used the Mongol name for China, Kitai. Oh, wow. Which is, that's amazing because um, in the Russian language, like I, I speak and I study Russian, um, it's mm-hmm. called Kitai in, in Russian. And so it's um, like we call it China, but they don't, they don't take a um, transliteration of China, but they call it Kitai. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, wow. So that's the origin of Kitai. That's right, yeah. Wow. So you know, uh, the name of countries and just like uh, ideas, uh, the first impression the first impression matters a lot. Yes. So a lot of the, a lot of uh, uh, what the West know about Confucianism is still heavily framed uh, by the Jesuit ideas yeah. and mm-hmm. the early thinkers who read into uh who read into all these accounts of uh, Confucius yeah. uh, by the Jesuits. Well, and of course, you know, it seems to be there was a need to put it around uh, a central figure, perhaps, because, well, in the old days, you know, uh, even up to maybe even the early 20th century, I'm not sure, this is just an example, that, you know, mm-hmm. you would hear about, instead of the word Muslims, you will hear the word Mohammedans. So it's, um, you know, kind of naming the religion after the, the, you know, the prophet or the, or the founder of that philosophy. So instead of um, Ruism, which is the thought of the, uh, well, what does Ruism mean? Like Ru, mm. is that mean the way or the path or something? Um, Ru really means a scholar. Scholar. Okay. Yeah. So. That's right. Yeah. So I guess the Jesuits want to put a name to the philosophy, so they go to the the person Confucius, <laughs> and um, yeah. and um, so he's the quote unquote founder of it. But even as he would say, I'm not an innovator. I'm not originating this idea. I'm just talking about these ideas that are here and thinking more of them. So that's a it's a different uh, conception of 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 the philosophy. Yeah, 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 definitely. and yeah, that's that's what makes it really interesting. I, I guess you know, um, 
uh, with all this knowledge that's uh, being written up in a uh, in ivory towers, various academies, I think mm-hmm. it would be a good idea. After a while, people uh, they'll come around and compare notes. Start co- start comparing notes because yeah. I don't think there is enough like interchange uh, between uh, what is being taught about the same subject in one country and and another. Yes, yes. That's why cultural exchange and um, you know, humanitarian visas, which deal with cultural exchange and stuff like that. It's very, it's an important thing. It's re- not only do you get, um, that not only does it make academia and learning more interesting, it also makes it like being able to understand something else properly instead of having where you might have a good understanding of something, but there's a crucial misconception. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Going now into practicalities, we talked a bit about Confucian beliefs, some of the practices and the origins. Mm-hmm. What about it, it practically? How has Ruism influenced Asian societies? Has it had more influence in one region over another? Uh, yes, it influenced different uh, different regions differently because uh, when they were brought into Korea, they were brought into Japan, um, they were uh, tailored to the local political needs and local right. agendas pretty much. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, you know, even in China itself, it's, yeah. uh, it's a living tradition because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, new ideas just keeps getting added, new Confucian traditions, new interpretations, uh, new schools are uh, popping in and out. Uh, oh, wow. All the time. Uh, that's why uh, uh, when uh, Zhu Xi and his school of Zheng Yi, uh, school of Confucianism, came around, they became uh, very relevant, and um, Zhu Xi pretty much become uh, the uh, the figurehead of what the West would call Neo Confucianism. Uh, the thing is, you know, even not long after uh, Confucius' death, we have Mencius. Uh, he pretty much added uh, other. Uh, ideas and but at the time there were already uh, competitions against him. Xunzi, Confucius, Mencius, he claims that all humans are by nature good, but Xunzi mm. says all humans are by nature uh, evil or so <laughs> selfish, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So that's why they need to be educated. Uh, but Mencius, uh, he thinks um, they. Uh, you know they are by nature good, but sometimes they just need to be refined until yeah. they can reach that uh, perfected stage. Yeah. Um, Mencius is a bit more influential, and you know his uh, line of tradition is brought on, brought forward. The thing is, you know, Confucianism. Uh, we need to know that there are different strains. Like most ideas, most philosophies, uh, the Confucian scholars are the people in the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. They are. Uh, Debating how Confucianism should work and how uh, it should be, how the classical text should be reinterpreted, and okay. so on. The normal people, the peasants, uh, they are pretty much uh, just uh, taking it by osmosis because a lot of these traditions already exist uh, in that tradition already, mm-hmm. and um, like ancestor worship on all the other things. Right. Uh, the Confucius's version is just more ritualized and more rigid. Um, and you know, uh, in 
because back, uh, we need to remember that China is an empire, which means that there are different provinces, different states yes. with their own localized relig- uh, localized traditions and so on. Mm-hmm. And they just, everyone just do things a bit differently. Right. So this sort of confusion or, or, or orthodoxy is pretty much pushed by the scholars, by the Ruiz, uh, the mm-hmm. Confucian scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, you know, uh, not all their, not all of their ideas may be transmitted to the people. Sometimes they just stay in the book uh, and so on. Yeah. So then, then it becomes a, a a textual idea that's not really doesn't really change or it's not really transmitted unless you read the books. Uh, that's right. Oh, and okay. uh, the thing is, you know, a lot of people, if they want to. Uh, pass the imperial examination and mm-hmm. to become successful uh, to gain official position yeah. they have to read the book yeah, <laughs> if they yeah. want to advance their own <laughs> class yeah what would you say is the most significant change perhaps or is that too uh, too broad <laughs> because there's may have been so many many changes over the centuries uh a significant change between uh, i assume you're asking this in regards to neo-confucianism mm. Oh, right? like, or... like for, um, like from the quote unquote original teachings to how it may have changed over the centuries. Like, have you thought of a, or is Neo-Confucianism <clears throat> the biggest change? Uh, Neo-Confucianism is, uh, it's a change observed, uh, in the, in the West, uh, mm. But you know, in China, it's, uh, Song Ming Ruism, uh, okay. uh Song Ming, uh, 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 it means the Confucianism of Song Dynasty and Ming Dynasty. That's where there is a lot of change during that time. Okay. So they are seeing a period of change instead of uh, a new Confucianism, instead of a sudden change. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. um, so the change is observed uh, more gradually over there because they are more familiar with the text, uh, with the uh, ideological evolution. Oh. And uh, the thing is, you know, uh, they actually had imperial uh, academies, the Hanling academies, mm-hmm. which is used to uh, decide you know, what is the proper interpretation of these classical texts. Uh, and, you know, these academies, there are various factions vying uh, for their own interpretation mm-hmm. uh, uh, to be pushed uh, to the emperor and so on. And uh, one of the biggest success was uh, Zhu Xi's uh, interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, which is called uh, Neo-Confucianism in the West. Right. He died before uh, any of his ideas were implemented. It was mm-hmm. pushed by his disciples, actually. So it's a tradition. Uh, it's pretty much a tradition that's been carried over to his disciples, and they pushed uh, his ideas through. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is, you know, uh, it's a bit of a... Uh, problem too because uh, what happened is that you know he uh, picked the four books which he considered to be the essential part of Confucianism and two of the books are actually just a small chapter uh, just an excerpt a chapter mm-hmm. from the classic book of rights mm-hmm. uh, and there is also uh, the Analects uh, yes and which is uh, Confucius is saying that's mm-hmm. uh, a separate book and uh, Mencius's books so uh, he thinks, you know, these books are really important. Uh, you should uh, know them really well 
before looking at the five classics, five classics, the base. And the, the problem is these four books become the basic of all the confusion like testing. So if you want to pass the exam, you have to learn all the words in them uh, exactly. Mm, okay. Oh, verbatim. Yeah. Verbatim, yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's strict. Well, actually, going into that... Um... Neo-Confucianism or Song Min, right? Song Min Ruinism? Uh, Song Min, yeah. Song Ruism, Min, yeah. okay. So, um, uh, like, I spent a, a few years in South Korea and I found that mm-hmm. the last dynasty there, the Chosan, <coughs> followed Neo-Confucianism. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about the, the roots of it. How was it applied mm-hmm. in Korea? I understand it was, like you said, um, he he wanted people to follow the text verbatim. So I understand in Korea it was a fairly intolerant and very strict philosophy. Is that is that is that what you found in your reading of it? Uh, it has become that. Uh, the thing is, uh, um, uh, just to correct uh, a bit, it's, uh, he didn't uh, wanted uh, people to remember them uh, verbatim. Oh, okay. It's just that you know the way it has been implemented because ah. a lot of these ideas uh, even the later neo confucianism uh, the later later neo confucianist uh, wang yangming he uh, he didn't want people to record his uh, sayings because he doesn't uh, want people to uh, to uh, because uh, by that time, by the Ming Dynasty, it has already become a problem. He just wanted people to understand, to seek the answer himself, uh, to okay. seek the answer themselves. But what happened is that people keep writing down what he's saying. And, <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, that has become an ongoing issue. Right. Mm, okay. Uh, and, and, you know, what happens is that, you know, um, uh, going back to Zuzi's uh, time, you know, he was very much against the... Uh, the Buddhists. Mm-hmm. He didn't yeah. like the Buddhists because uh, their way of life uh, is very much against Confucianism. They cut uh, uh, themselves out of the family. They become ascetic, and sometimes you know they had to uh, cut their own hair, which is uh, as almost it's become a, something quite immoral mm-hmm. in Confucianism because you know it's uh, parts of your body are considered to be gifts from your parents you should not mutilate it at all yeah and you know they cut their hair not only that back then they also performed uh, various rituals like even uh, hurting themselves and so on yeah, um, yeah that's uh, you know they are very uh, very much against Buddhism mm-hmm. uh, but however Buddhist and Taoist ideas have become uh, so mainstream too. Their philosophy is so mainstream. Yeah. Uh, he also borrowed their uh, cosmology, mm-hmm. for example, uh, from Huayan Buddhism, which oh, okay. is a very interesting concept, which is uh, called the uh, Indra's net. The idea is that uh, just imagine a net. Uh, you know, when the lines cross, there should be a knot, right? But uh, right. that imagine if those knots are. Uh, made of jewels, very reflective jewels. Huh. From that jewels, yeah, from that jewel, you can see uh, a reflection of the other jewels uh, from the other parts of the net. So the idea is that you know, by looking into the microcosm, you can learn about the macrocosm too. Wow! Uh, so um, that's why uh, during his time, his Confucianism is called uh, 
rationalist uh, Confucianism. So he's he encouraged uh, Zhu Xi encourages people to learn things uh, by investigating things one by one, uh, uh, to learn through investigation. Mm-hmm. But uh, part of the things that needs to be investigated is the classics. You know, what are the important bits of the classics, and also other parts of life too, uh, moral, morally, and some perhaps it, sometimes even things scientifically. But it's not quite science yet. But the idea is that you know you need to think of things rationally, almost as evidence-based uh, uh, investigation into moral too. Mm, uh, what happened is that you know it's uh, very influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes uh, a very strong case against Buddhism, yeah. even though it uses uh, it borrows Buddhist ideas. <laughs> uh, and uh, the Koreans love it so much. An Hyang, uh, he uh, looked when one of the Korean Confucian scholars, mm-hmm. when he saw that you know he just copied uh, the material, uh, draw a picture of Zuzi and brought it to Korea. Mm-hmm. Why? Because back then, Buddhism had become a very corrupting influence in Korea. Yes. So he needs a competition against uh, Bud- Buddhism. Yeah. And uh, that's why Neo-Confucianism uh, became uh, uh, championed uh, to push against all this uh, Buddhist uh, influence. Right. Uh, but the problem is, as they replaced Buddhism, it you it also uh, pretty much replaces all the fundamental needs. It has to uh, cover all the all the grounds that Buddhism covered. Uh, for example, even not just ritual, it's also uh, like a spiritual and everything. So so it needs to do everything uh, Buddhism did and does it better. It has to replace right. what it dis- what it tries to destroy within Korea. That's right. So that's why you know uh, it something very funny between uh, Korea and China happened uh, uh, during the Imjin War. Mm-hmm. That's um, in the around fifteen hundreds. You know when yes. uh, Japan attacked Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened is that you know when the Chinese soldiers came back, it's already the Joseon Dynasty. Uh, a few hundred years have passed, you know, since uh, Neo-Confucianism has started uh, to be yeah. adopted in Korea. Mm-hmm. They become f- quite fundamentalists. Yeah. And when they saw the Chinese soldiers uh, fighting along them, they say, oh my God, these people, <laughs> they're supposed to be Confucianists, but they are so superstitious. They are so, ta- a lot of wow. them are Taoist believers. All of them are like Buddhist believers. What's wow. wrong with them? <laughs> they're surprised. It's a culture yeah. shock. <laughs> well, it's, that that was actually another question or comment I had in my mind as well, because the idea of Neo-Confucianism in Korea being used against against Buddhists and persecuting them, you know, I guess I guess the Buddhists, like you said, they had a, the, the establishment of Buddhism was kind of seen as corrupt and, and all-powerful, so Neo-Confucianism and the mm-hmm. Joseon dynasty are trying to persecute them, but so this is very much a departure from China's um, three teachings ideology, which allowed Ruism, Taoism, and Buddhism to coexist, right? That's right, yeah. yeah That's yeah. very different. Uh, in China, they are very relaxed, very relaxed, you know, with what they do. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, it's uh, sort of like how uh, uh, this ideology is also, uh, Confucianism is also practiced quite differently in Japan, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. H- how is it different in Japan? 
All right. Uh, Japan, uh, like Korea, had a really long contact uh, with each other, right. uh, with, uh, with China. So con- I guess Confucianism isn't new, but Neo-Confucianism came uh, much later. So uh, previously, uh, during the Tang Dynasty, when uh, the Japanese are sending their envoys and so on, most of their envoys are actually uh, Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So everything is brought back through Buddhist lens right. and also through the lens of their officials. Usually they find the best officials uh, and send to China to learn. Some of them are actually, uh, you know, if as long as they pass the examination, mm-hmm. anyone can become uh, official in China. Oh, okay. So after spending a few years working as an official in China, when they go back to Japan, uh, they will be greeted with uh, like lots of uh, rewards because they have gained a lot of like uh, work knowledge and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, since they are already working for the uh, emperor, uh, they uh, the biggest uh, thing about like Confucianism in China is that you know the people had the right to overthrow an evil government. Yes. It justifies a dynastic change. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, they yeah. uh, wiped that out. <laughs> yeah, because uh, until now, Japan still had uh, the same emperor from the same dynastic line. Right. Uh, and yeah. uh, because, you know, they are trying to make sure that, you know, um, the people uh, don't get any ideas from that. Um, and yeah. also, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the ideas are, uh, seen through Buddhist lens and uh, Buddhist schools are teaching them uh, uh, in Buddhist temples. Uh, right. All these educations are provided Buddhist temples, so they are not challenging the Buddhist uh, religion. Yeah, or and their I guess, philosophy. Yeah, and the philosophy. Well, and I guess I don't know if Shintoism has a role there too, because state Shintoism in the Japanese huh? Empire. I don't know about during the Imjin War period, but I know during World War II and up until the end of World War II, the emperor was was kind of a divine figure and everything. So you don't want this. If if Shintoism had that belief back back then in the 16th century, you don't want this idea of well, the emperor's a bad person. He's he has no right to rule. Let's overthrow him. But in Japan, you don't want to. Um, overthrow a divine figure i'm not sure if that belief was around back then or maybe a little bit little bit later closer to world war ii um yeah uh, it should have uh, existed back then because oh, okay. what happened uh, all uh, before world war ii there is a movement called uh, kokugaku with a national study okay. it is based on ne- uh, it is a reworking of neo-confucianism Neo-Confucianism has also entered Japan around uh, the time uh, Neo-Confucianism beca- became relatively popular in China. But okay. the thing is, you know, it ha- it was still brought in by the uh, Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of like a, a side uh, a side philosophy that they're not really not really important until the Edo period, until oh. after the Warring States period. Yeah. Because during the Warring States, everybody was too busy fighting <laughs> to study philosophy. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. yeah. So what happened uh, during Edo period? Uh, the emperor was, uh, you know, uh, pretty much under the control of the Tokugawa shogunate. Yes. And. Uh, as a show, as a shogun, he wants to uh, 
create his own base of control, his authority, his own moral authority. Mm -hmm. So he uses Confucian, neo-Confucianism as his base. Uh, and he imported, uh, even though, uh, you know, it, Japan was considered to be closed uh, in Western terms. Yeah. They still uh, have open channels uh, for trade, you know, with uh, surrounding countries, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Korea, China, and so on. Yeah. Um, and oh, with, with the Dutch too. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the thing is, yeah. Uh, the thing is that they bring in a lot of like uh, neo-Confucian texts and uh, you know, they are learning from it because they think it's useful uh, they, if they can... Uh, uh, justify his if Tokawa can justify his rule by uh, moral mm -hmm. uh, and you know uh, by through the Confucian sort of like a, a stepped a relationship uh, how a subject needs to listen to their daimyo first before yeah. the emperor mm -hmm. uh, that would be very beneficial for them Right, but there is also a separate movement there. After a while, seeing uh, the Ming Dynasty fall and taken over by the Qing Dynasty, mm -hmm. the Manchu people, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, glamour of like uh, China fell by a lot. Yes. So they are starting their own national study. Mm -hmm. uh, they are looking at all these Confucian models and they realize uh, these are uh, foreign sages. Um, I think we should uh, focus on our own uh, like uh, national heroes and national uh, legendary figures, and we should learn our models from them. Oh. So uh, through Neo-Confucianism, they started uh, to take uh, similar ideas and to apply it to their own uh, national uh, to their own national ethos. Right. So that's how Local it was Japanese. created. Local Japanese. That's right. Yeah. Oh wow. And that's well, right. Yeah. So because like. Uh, I've never been to Japan and everything, but I wouldn't necessarily classify it as a as a quote unquote Ruist or Confucian society. So I guess that's where that transformation could have occurred. Then, mm, yep, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, back then um, they were actually uh, very well versed in all the Confucian texts, and mm. even uh, because. Uh, they had all these different schools and uh, they they and after the sengoku period uh, when they had a massive uh, revolt uh, by the ikoiki monks mm -hmm. and so on mm -hmm. they have uh, suppressed a lot of them they have pretty much made a almost like an accord with the buddhists mm -hmm. so the buddhists are pretty much in control of uh, the japanese uh, daily life mm -hmm. uh, post office are uh, the all these uh, Buddhist temples become post office and also <laughs> schools and also registry wow. and so on. Uh, so, uh, for example, in Japan, they, they know that uh, Buddhist temples are for the dead. So because uh, they would have to keep track of all the dead people and and so on. Wow. And you know, uh, even a lot of like uh, relatively secular or non-religious uh, people in Japan would still go to the Buddhist temple to have uh, the furniture, have the funeral rites of their uh, parents uh, taken care of and so on. Mm -hmm. um, they are pretty much uh, become uh, clerks, oh. almost the empire's clerk uh, for yeah. Japan during the Edo period. Wow. So it kind of becomes this system where the, the Buddhist um, infrastructure, if you will, or the Buddhist um, temples and everything, they become the bureaucracy almost, while Shintoism is the, is the kind of state religion, if you will. 
Yep. Yep. Something like yeah. that. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. And um, just um, going back to neo Confucianism again, um, I mm. you said that um, it has to replace Buddhism in Korea. Um, so, and I understand mm. that neo neo Ruism or Song Songmin. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if, sorry if my pronunciation was wrong. Um, um, that's his fine. form that's of Ruism. Um, it it described the beginning of the world in kind of medical phys- metaphysical terms. So is that that was a way to help uh, neo ruism replace Buddhism in Korea? Um, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, usually okay. Confucians aren't really concerned with how the world art, uh, how right. the wor- world started mm-hmm. or you know, how it ends, uh, you know, what happens after death. Yeah. You know, if you can't uh, manage your life, uh, if you can't manage uh, yourself when you're alive, you know, how are you supposed to worry about death? <laughs> so that, that would be, <laughs> that would be the, uh, uh, that would be the role of Buddhists and Taoists. Okay. They're the ones concerned with... Confucianism has a little bit of spiritual things, but Taoism and Buddhism is really the one that is concerned about what's your eternal destiny? Are you reaching enlightenment? Are you following the way? Well, Confucianism is just like life here on earth, live by that. Your The the country and your own life will be in order on, on, on the earth. Okay. Oh, That's right. Good. Yeah. So um, now that we've talked a little bit about Confucianism in um, or Ruism applied in in Korea, China, and and even Japan, what about some of its modern applications? Would you say that some modern Asian governments apply Confucianism today? Uh well, that's the difficult bit, isn't it? The, the, yeah. the, the thing is that, you know, uh, to define uh, what is Confucianism really, it's almost like uh, asking people, are you, uh, are, are you uh, living, uh, are you standing in air right now? Because, <laughs> uh, nice. yeah, because what happens to them is, uh, what happens to a lot of these Confucian ideals is a lot of them has already existed as uh, tradition in mm-hmm. China and mm-hmm. a lot of them are being practiced without people realizing that's a Confucian uh, ritual, yeah. Confucian rites, mm-hmm. uh, when they are like burning incense to, to pray to their ancestor, they may think that it is a Buddhist or is it is a Taoist ritual mm-hmm. uh, or uh, they, are, they don't consider it as Confucian ritual. Oh. Uh, Confucianism just becomes uh, melded as tradition to them. Mm, um, so they don't. They practice all these Confucian uh, rit- rituals or even this Confucian uh, ethics mm-hmm. without even realizing it. It's, yeah. To them, it's just tradition. It's very much like how even though some Christians have become non-believers, they are still practicing some Christian ethics. Yeah, they have become like culturally Christian. Mm-hmm. So a lot of like uh, people in uh, Asia, they be, they are pretty much culturally Confucian, even yeah. though they don't specifically consider it uh, as a Confucian act. Yeah, and I guess well nowadays the the People's Republic of China is officially a, a communist atheist state as well, but culturally people will still apply what they've learned through tradition, maybe, like you said, not realizing it's a, it's a Confucian tradition. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So if not in modern politics, what about social norms? Like there's respect for elders. Do you see Confucianism in that um, 
that belief of respecting elders and being in a uh, acting in a harmonious way with others in society is that a, would you say that's a, a ruist um, ethic being applied in in everyday life? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, it is. Uh, it's become a part of uh, local culture, local tradition. Um, uh, but it also has to do with uh, how how they are used to run their society. Pretty much, uh, right? It's like uh, they're usually Asian parents would like spend uh, invest a lot in their children's education and so mm-hmm. on. It's mm-hmm. uh, I think it has a lot of like. Uh, um, it's pretty much a leftover of all this like imperial education and everything yes. uh, in their perception. Um, you know, their uh, people's uh, path to success is through education. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. also um, a lot of these habits uh, came through uh, all this uh, confusion uh ideas uh, from the past yeah. that has become baked in and for example even in uh, in like uh, Chinese Marxism I think um, they are focusing a lot more on the rural peasantry yes. which is very much based on the uh, uh, Confucian idea that of the four uh, four occupations right mm-hmm. first is the uh, intellectual uh, and then the farmers uh, followed by the craftsmen and then the merchants merchants last yeah yeah, that's and the thing is, you know, uh, if the even during the Cultural Revolution, when the literati is cut off, you have the uh, farmers. Yes, and the farmers are very much uh, championed, and they are considered as the proletariat and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it has a lot of uh, cultural background too that makes the idea a lot more uh, palatable right. uh, to to the local people. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm not an expert on all this communist history, but yeah. uh, this is the first thing that comes to mind. That's very interesting. Yeah, that reminds me of um, what some of the like. I find the differences between major branches of communism a fascinating thing. You know, communism is not this monolith where it's just one idea. I I understand it in Maoism. The, like you said, the proletariat was the peasantry, while Leninism kind of focused on industry, the industrialists, the industrial workers. About Ruism being applied in diaspora communities, like in Asian American communities, um, do you see Confucianism or Ruism being applied like outside of China, outside of Korea, like in any spe- special way or anything? They may not consciously apply Ruism, but a yeah. lot of their Chinese tradition is based on a Confucian uh, culture. Yeah. Um, they, it's almost like you know, they don't know they are practicing a Ruist philosophy, right? Because it's really baked in, into that tradition, and also their uh, literature and their culture and so on. Their poems by. Uh, a lot of the poems are written by scholar officials and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, it's become so baked into every facet of their culture. Mm-hmm. They are practicing a form of Confucianism even without realizing it. Yeah, yeah. So same, same as in China, essentially. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, okay. But the thing is, you know, in China, uh, they may have a different view of uh, Confucianism because they have a hate-love relationship uh, with Confucianism <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh, he they consider uh, Confucius to be a symbol of feudalism and backward thinking yeah. uh, in, during the Cultural Revolution. But actually, it happened way before that, yeah. uh, after the fall of the 
uh, Qing Dynasty, even a lot of the Republican Chinese uh, and a lot of intellectuals during that era has already lambasted uh, and blamed Confucianism for that backwardness. Wow! But wow. nowadays, yeah, they are they are finding new place for Confucianism. Uh, they are still trying to figure him out. <laughs> it's a it's a difficult problem, you know. Much of the culture is based on Confucianism, or at least is very influential on the culture. But there's still mm. these other beliefs, like like you say, keeping mm. us keeping us back, or or um, reinforcing feudalism and things like that. So it's a it's not a simple yes or no question. Yes, uh, and you know it's actually he's being boosted by the government uh, in the last uh, since the last decade, a decade at least, or mm-hmm. maybe last two decades. Okay, uh, we he's back on TV, he's back on like uh, on school education and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not sh- sure if they are still going to push. Uh, Confucian uh, tradition into school as a valid ideology that they're going to uh, continue on. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I think, in my opinion, they are still trying to figure out how to fit him uh, along with uh, Marxist tradition. Because, you know, right now they are, um, through my uh, casual observation, they are trying to push this Marxism or communism with Chinese characteristic. Oh yeah. Um, but you know what is Chinese characteristic? How much of it is going to be Confucianism, or it's how are they going to redefine their tradition uh, through Confucianism, or they're just gonna cons- call it Chinese tradition mm. without uh, mentioning Confucianism too much? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a tricky thing when you want to uh, define a culture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what are some good introductory texts for those interested in Ruism itself or its history? You mentioned the, uh, the classics and the analects. What would be kind of a, mm-hmm. a Confucianism or Ruism 101 you could recommend to viewers of your YouTube channel or, or listeners uh, what, or for beginners? What would, what would you recommend? Uh, well, uh, I'm not, well, uh, there's quite a few, I, I guess, you know, um, uh, what would be, uh, I think uh, a good introduction would be, uh, it's not specifically uh, Confucianism, but mm-hmm. that is a, a really good, uh, concise uh, history uh, series on mm-hmm. China from Yao to Mao, I think, That's by true. Ken Hammond. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yao from Yao and Sun. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, to Mao. So uh, Ken Hammond's uh, series uh, on oh, 5,000 years of Chinese history uh, uh, is really good. Oh, that's good. Um, it's, uh, it's almost like a complete uh, crash course on Chinese history, which is very long. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you just pick on the Confucian-related uh, cha- uh, topics or uh, chapters mm-hmm. uh, over there, that's uh, really helpful. Oh, Great. And, um, and of course, people can always go to Kuro History Bros for a nice summary and an introduction, of course. <laughs> All right, yeah. yeah, definitely. Okay, so and um, mm. what, in your opinion, is the most important Confucian uh, tenet or idea that's been applied in Confucian societies or maybe can it be applied in everyday life? Uh, well... 
I would say, uh, I guess, you know, nowadays looking at all what's happening around news and social media, I would say rectification of name mm. would be a good idea. Yeah. Rectification of names, uh, which, uh, you know, when Confucius was asked, you know, what is the best way to rule by a duke from Wei, he said, you know, the first thing he needs to do is to rectify names, pretty much to define things as they are. And, you know, if you don't have uh, correct information or correct definition for words or uh, uh, or ideas, you know, it, there would be miscommunications, right. orders or, uh, you know, a, a discussion cannot be held properly. Yeah. So nothing will come out of it. That's very wise, actually. I always like um, trying to listen to the rule of even if you don't agree with something, try not to have a misconception about it. Be properly informed about that thing so you can talk about it properly and discuss it properly. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. CJ, thank you so much for um, for speaking with us. And it was, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. And uh, it was an honor having you on. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me, Christian. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Sorry for the technical issues early on, but uh, again, it was a pleasure to have you and, um, and we'll keep in touch. No worries. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. See ya. You see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's all, folks. Uh, thank you very much for joining us about uh, learning about Confucianism or Ruism. Definitely, once again, please check out uh, CJ Leung's um, uh, YouTube channel, Cool History Bros. Uh, like I said before, it's a very fun uh, and informative channel uh, made by a talented YouTuber and historian. So you can uh, definitely check it out and, um, and learn a lot about Asian history. And also, in addition to CJ, I would like to thank my lovely wife, Patricia, who helped me plan this podcast. Thanks uh, to her. And uh, next time, uh, I hope to see you guys soon. I hope to get another um, guest on the show uh, sometime soon. But I will keep working on the podcast, as always. And as uh, I always like to say, take care, take care of yourselves, and each other. Bye-bye. <laughs>